So he had a, a, a traumatic arrest from exsanguination. And I thought, well, this is an opportunity to be able to fix this without the heart beating in my face. So I did. And I think that his total arrest time was, I don't know, 10 or 12 minutes or so. Started his heart back up and he ended up making a remarkable recovery, came home, medically retired, went to undergrad at Dartmouth and now is enrolled in medical school. I mean, just an incredible story for, for that ranger. Welcome to War Docs, the military medicine podcast. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of the entire military healthcare team. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, Wardox has you covered. On this episode, we're privileged to welcome Colonel David R. King to Wardox. Dr. King trained as a general surgeon and completed fellowship training in trauma and surgical critical care at the Ryder Trauma Center in Miami. He currently practices trauma and acute care surgery at the Massachusetts General Hospital and also is associated with the U.S. Army Joint Special Operations Command as a combat surgeon. You can read his full bio at wardoxpodcast.com. In this episode, you'll hear some remarkable stories of trauma care, both in combat as well as responding to the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. Colonel King shares a story of performing surgery on a U.S. Army Ranger in the most austere of deployed conditions and saving the soldier's life. Dr. King also describes some groundbreaking research in stopping traumatic bleeding using novel technologies such as self-expanding foams, as well as better training and familiarity with tourniquets for extremity hemorrhage. I'm your host, retired Army urologist Doug Soderdahl, and I'm joined by Army vascular surgeon, Dr. Kevin Neary. Today, we're privileged to welcome Colonel Dr. David R. King to Wardox. Dave, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Dr. King, tell us a little bit about your journey that led you to join the Army. You know, it's one of those things that was always eating at me for a long time. My grandfather was a medic in World War II, and I actually have his uh, original Red Cross armband framed in my and hanging on my living room wall. But like many people from that generation, I'd ask him 100 questions, and, and he'd give me exactly zero answers. But I was always sort of fascinated with his service, and I'd find myself playing with his uniform or admiring it in the basement or something growing up. And then I went to undergrad, paid my own way, went to medical school, paid my own way. And then as an intern, I decided it was time to join the army. So I walked into the Boston army recruiting station and I said, Hey, I want to join the army. And the recruiter says, okay, what do you want to do for the army? I said, well, I'm, uh, I'm a doctor. And he started laughing and he's like, doctors just don't walk into the recruiting station. And I was like, well, one just did. And he was like, yeah, I don't know. I was like, dude, do not make the biggest mistake of your recruiting career by sending me away to the Air Force or something. And what I ended up learning from that is that I don't know if this is like this everywhere, but at least in Boston, they handle healthcare recruiting different than, I guess, the rest of the pipeline. And so he put me in touch with a healthcare recruiter who, as it turns out, was non-military. It's one of these contracted gigs with some other like industrial contractor. And this person was much nicer and gentler and th than I would expect a military recruiter to be. And frankly, I was kind of disappointed because she was like, well, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to do some cool stuff. And she's like, well, I don't know about the cool stuff, but we can get you in the army as a doc. I was like, okay, let's start with that. And that was, uh, let's see. 31 days before 9-11. So after completing that internship, you went on to do a general surgery residency at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital, and you then chose to do a fellowship at Ryder Trauma Center. What drew you to specialize in trauma? 
and surgical critical care. So I'll tell you a, a good mentor, and I don't know if this will ever get back to him, but Dr. Stephen Cohn was the, the chief of trauma in Miami back then. And this guy, someone I still keep in touch with to this day, this guy was so invested in education, medical student education. I actually went back, I started at BIDMC in Boston, and then got a T32 grant to be an NIH research fellow, which happened to be in a lab in Miami. So I went back to Miami to do two years of research for the NIH. And because I had gone to medical school there, I knew the topography of the city and of the hospital and the trauma center. And I kind of sort of fell back in love with Jackson Memorial and Ryder, and I wanted to stick around there. And this doc, Stephen Cohn, was one of my research mentors at the time. And he would just invite you into the trauma bay and explain what was happening. And I mean, I was hooked. I was like, this is cool. Like we're doing stuff. It's very different than general surgery where you get three CT scans and an MRI and consult cardiology. And we're just sitting there going, all right, that guy looks like he's dying. Let's go to the operating room. It was very different than any other exposure I'd ever had to surgery. And I was like, I love this. This is like making hard decisions with incomplete and inaccurate information and still having good outcomes. Sign me up. And so, but because the mentorship was so good there, when my research fellowship was done, they had a categorical surgical residency spot available. And I was fortunate enough to slide into that spot and finished out there. Now, was the Army training at Ryder at that time when you were? So it's funny. One of my other research mentors, Kenneth Proctor, and I, and John Armstrong, who you may know, and Stephen Cohn, we all collectively helped stand up the Army Trauma Training Center. This all rolls back to like 2002. We created the big simulation training that that the rotating FSTs would do at the beginning. I participated in coaching in the operating room and out of the operating room, giving some talks. And looking back, I, I certainly didn't appreciate how important it was at the time, but looking back, it is lo- likely one of the more satisfying, important contributions I think that I've made was being in the right place at the right time to be able to contribute to creating uh, a, a training environment that I think was badly needed and frankly still is, probably now more than ever. So your first deployment to Southwest Asia was to Iraq in 2008, where you served both on the 848 forward surgical team and the 86 combat support hospital. Can you tell us a little bit about that assignment and your most memorable clinical cases and non-clinical experiences? So I originally went out with the cash. And when I got there, I'll tell you a a couple of quick stories about that. The the cash was, was extraordinarily busy. And we'd get these shipments of blood from the Red Cross. And we'd help unload this, the truck. We'd stack these cooler boxes up and whatever. I don't remember at the time, but each box, insulated box, I think had like four units of red cells or something in it and packed with some dry ice or whatever they were packed in. And each box was a cube that was probably about one and a half feet cubic. And so we'd help stack these boxes and we'd be stacking them so high, way over our head. And then you do some quick mental math and you'd add up like, geez, you just stacked about 250 units of blood. And my first night there, there was a large mass casualty incident. And the next morning when I went out to get coffee, I walked past where we had stacked all this blood and it was all gone. Like every last box was gone. And I knew we had worked all night and I knew we had taken care of a lot of casualties, but it was just unbelievable the amount of blood that we could 
tear through in a single evening in a single mass casualty event and then cycle repeating itself. And having just come from a trauma fellowship where I know this is not entirely true, but at most U.S. academic level one centers, you have the impression at least of near infinite resources. That's not exactly true, but it's mostly true most of the time for most patients. And it occurred to me that we're in the middle of Iraq and we just tore through whatever this few hundred units of blood in a matter of 12 or 16 hours. And if a C-17 didn't show up with uh, a whole bunch of more boxes, we could be in big trouble at any minute. And of course, it wasn't my job to manage the blood bank, of course, but just walking past every morning, the place where all this blood had been stacked the night before, it, it always made an impression on me like, holy cow, because you, you get in the zone where you're busy as a surgeon, you're doing your thing, and you know that it's busy around you, but you don't really have, because you're focused on your own thing, you don't have a total appreciation of how many other operations are going on right now and how well is the, the other guy doing in the other operating room. And there's a famous picture that it floats around the interweb sometime because it's been used in a variety of presentations of me and Lee Cancio operating at Ibnina together during one of these mass casualty events with two operating room beds tilted towards each other, the heads tilted towards each other so that one anesthesiologist could run back and forth between these two trauma operations that were happening. And even in the same room, right, in the same operating room, I can remember very vividly exactly what the injury pattern was on my casualty. And I had absolutely no idea what Dr. Cancio is doing exactly three feet away from me on his casualty. That's how focused in the zone I feel like you can often get in these situations. So that was always a, an appreciation walking past all those not empty boxes, but missing boxes. I don't know where they went after we took the blood out of them, but they disappeared probably through a burn pit or maybe they got recycled. I don't know. But um, walking past that every morning was always a sober reminder of like, holy cow, that's a, that's a lot of blood. You just finished your, your fellowship training in trauma. And so you're coming into this invincible. You've got all the skills that you need. Did you feel prepared for what you saw downrange? So Without sounding cavalier, I think that I had ex truly excellent and amazing training at Ryder Trauma Center. A lot of things gave me a moment of pause on my first tour, but the injuries truly did not. I, I felt extraordinarily well prepared. I don't just mean technically, even just psychologically, I had sort of done a lot of like visualization. A lot of surgeons do this, like professional athletes, maybe injuries you've never seen, like a gunshot wound to the first full end segment of the SMA. Like you may never see that and you may not see it for 30 years and then you'll see one. But unless you've thought through that half a dozen or more times, the first time you see it, you might stumble unless you've done this sort of mental exercise of, okay, this is what I'm going to do if I think I have that kind of injury. And in my fellowship, we spent a lot of time thinking and talking about these, these sort of rare, but like high real estate injuries. So that even if you don't see it in training, you've talked and more importantly, thought about it enough that when it comes rolling your way, you, you get that feeling like, oh yeah, I've been here before, even though you may not have been here before. And I'll say that's the importance of having good mentors who will, who will say when you're presenting a case in the morning of what you did the night before, the way I look at it and the, the way I train our residents now is we talk about the case, but then I force them 
to tell me about that case when I add this twist or that twist? What would you have done if this was the situation or if uh, you saw this instead of that or this and this existed simultaneously to get them to think and engage in a thought process that is a little bit different than the nuts and bolts of exactly what they saw. And I feel like that process of, of thinking and visualizing things that you may not have ever seen or taken care of yourself is incredibly important because you no training program, lest you make it 20 years long, has any guarantee of exposing you to exactly one of everything, right? This is impossible. And the only way you're going to be equipped to deal with that is to think about those things in detail, often repeatedly over a long training period. And I felt like my fellowship training left me extremely well-trained. And so I was not intimidated by the downrange pathology. Other things intimidated me, but that did not. This is your first deployment. Did you have any memorable cases where it was maybe something that you did go through a mental exercise during your fellowship and say, man, that is a rare injury, but now I'm living it. And boy, I'll, I'll never forget this case. Oh, yes. I, I have a, a good handful of those. I, I did my first uh, trauma pneumonectomy in Baghdad. The operation, one of the operations you're never supposed to do because the outcomes are so dismal and uh, the other lung starts to suffer when you do that and you have some heart failure and on and on and on. So about a, a zillion reasons why you shouldn't do that operation. And uh, here I was signing up this young guy, right? Some young soldier who I'd never met to do this operation that I had been told repeatedly and learned repeatedly was a terrible idea, but there was no other way to salvage him. So I did my first trauma pneumonectomy on him. And predictably, he got post-pneumonectomy post -pneumonectomy syndrome. And we nursed him over that and he got better. If he was 30 years older, the outcome would have been very different. But there's something to be said about the gift of youth. I, I could probably have another dozen or two of cases just like that. Sort of these trauma no-nos that, that circumstances conspire to put you in a place where you don't have a choice. So you have to accept or calculate the risk uh, of doing versus not doing, and then decide to do, make the imperfect decision with the imperfect information. Yeah, I think people would definitely agree that deployment is not a place where there's infinite resources. For sure, right. And and that's the, the thing that struck me every time I walked by this you know giant wall of where the blood used to be the night before, I would think, geez, we need to be careful. We can't just be passing this stuff out every darn casualty, I don't know. I, I felt like the, the ISS was extraordinarily high there. Like everyone was bleeding, like for legit bleeding, not like a little bit of bleeding, where's your base deficit of minus four. I mean, legit bleeding, like base deficit minus 20. And they don't need a unit of blood. They need all of the blood. So to transition to a slightly different deployment, you were uh, sent with the 399th Combat Support Hospital in Operation New Horizon, an exercise in Haiti. This was several months after the devastating earthquake that struck the country. What kind of medical assistance were you able to provide? And what is the role of a trauma surgeon on a post-natural disaster humanitarian mission? It was it called an exercise for sake of who even knows, funding or something. But our, our role there was squarely to establish a hospital and, and take care of local nationals. And that, that's what we did. And what surprised me, is we were there a few weeks after the earthquake. So most of the patients with like the crush injury and stuff had either died or had been taken care of in other ways. We saw a few of those, not a lot, but what was apparent is the infrastructure was, what was there was poor 
And what remained after the earthquake was very little. And what, what that meant was you had a population with real surgical problems and no way to deal with them. And I don't mean necessarily surgical problems directly related to the earthquake. There was some of that. There were injuries that people were walking around with or not walking around with as a result of the earthquake or something falling on them. But the, as any population does, there's always this undertone of surgical disease. People get appendicitis and they get perforated diverticulitis and they get cholecystitis and you have to take care of that. They get gangrene and necrotizing soft tissue infections from wounds that they sustained during the earthquake that frankly were untreated because there was no medical infrastructure for them to be treated. That was our role there. And then I'll also say the busiest clinician in that cache in Haiti was the dentist. The amount of dental disease we saw in Haiti I mean, it was unparalleled and it, it, it got to the point where the dentist needed help. So I started helping him when I wasn't doing my own job. And it, it got to the point where I, I could pretty safely extract a molar, give, give anesthetic and, and take a tooth out because the demand was so busy and he just needed help. And the patients would line up literally for blocks, for blocks to come and see us with all manner of things. I saw winter bottoms nodes and... Uh, all manner of parasitic disease. I mean, you name it, uh, all kinds of pathology. I think we probably diagnosed about three dozen cases of malaria. I mean, all just all manner of things. We delivered a baby. Jeez. I mean, just, it's general medical care, right? When the, the medical needs of a population don't go away just because there's an earthquake, it continues to to tick. So we'll fast forward a little bit into uh, April of 2013, when there was a domestic terrorist attack occurring during the Boston Marathon, where two bombs detonated near the finish line of the marathon. Three civilians were killed and 250 were injured by bombs and were treated by 27 local hospitals. And you were uh, among the, the physicians who've cared for patients injured in that bombing. Can you tell us about your role in the care of the patients that day? I ran Boston that year. I, I think I ran a three-five which had me finishing the marathon about 50 minutes or so b before the detonations. And back then you used to be able to check a gear bag at the start and the buses would drive it to the finish so you could retrieve your stuff, the clothing you might've worn to stay warm right up until the start and so on and so on. So when I crossed the finish line, I went back to the athlete recovery area and I was waiting in line to pick up my gear bag, which of course we don't do anymore because of the terrorism risk. But I was waiting in line and in my post-race delirium, I got up to the bus and I asked, showed him my bib number and asked for my bag. And as it turns out, I'd been standing in the wrong line for about 25 minutes. So I go over to the correct bus, I get my gear bag and then head over to the, the Boston Common where the taxis were. And as I hopped in the taxi, I thought I heard something, a rumbling like uh, on my feet. And it almost reminded me of what either recoilless rifle rounds or a mortar round feels like when it, when it hits on your fob. I didn't hear anything. I heard no booms. And I'm not surprised because the devices, uh, the, the whole thing was a tragedy. So I don't want to take away anything from that. And as you probably know, I, I, I was the only doc to testify in the Cernayev trial. And the, you probably know that the, my testimony helped achieve the death penalty conviction for him, which the Supreme Court just upheld. I, I didn't hear a blast, but I felt something in, in the bottom of my feet right before I was getting in the taxi. And when you, when you string along the timeline, it turns out that I was there when the detonations went off. 
And as I was as I was getting in the in the taxi, I reached into my gear bag and I pulled out my phone. And I turned it on and it took a second to connect. We were a few blocks away and uh, headed home. And my phone just started to fill up with text messages. Some of them were text messages from sort of other chronic marathoning friends who had tracked me online, like the usual stuff. Hey, good finish. And then my really good friends texted me saying, hey, why you run so slow? And then literally uh, like screen after screen filled up with text messages from people who rarely reach out to me asking if I was okay. I, we heard something went wrong at the finish line. And I, I thought to myself, I, I mean, I, I was just at the finish line. Everything looked fine. So on the ride home, I open a web browser and I, I try to load up some national news, right? CNN.com, foxnews.com, whatever. None of this stuff was load. I kept hitting page request and page request and none of that would load. So then I tried some local news, local news websites. Those wouldn't load either. And by the time I was pulling into my house, which was only two miles from the, the finish line, enough things were wrong in my head, like what I had felt in my feet and like this sort of breakdown in comms that I said, forget it. Let's just go straight to the hospital. So drove straight to the hospital. And as I pulled up on the ambulance ramp, I looked around and I thought to myself, this looks like a regular Monday. Like nothing crazy is going on here. This looks like a regular Monday. There's a couple of ambulances here and no one's ringing around on Twitter. There's not uh, news crews everywhere. But still, for reasons I cannot explain or articulate, I had my hospital badge. I was still in running gear. I went in what I like to call like the secret entrance, one of these back doors that I usually use. And ran up to the call room where I grabbed a pair of scrubs, put it on over my running gear, and I still had my race bib on. And uh, I grabbed my surgical cap and my eye pro. And I, I don't know why I did that. It just something, I, I, I don't know why. I, I've been interviewed on this very question many times. I'm no better now describing the why than I ever was then. Diane Sawyer asked me the same question, and I had to tell her I can't explain it. I don't know. And then I, I took this other little stairwell down to the emergency department. And when I got down there, Caitlin Cates, and uh, these are, I, I use names with the patient's permission and also because it's fully in the public realm, but also because I, I know the patients well and the, the couple names that I will use, I expressly have their permission to talk about their care. Caitlin Cates was the index patient from the bombing, a, a young, otherwise healthy girl who was a spectator, who was the first patient to show up at any hospital in Boston with bombing related injuries. And when she came in, I saw just as I was getting downstairs, she was getting wheeled into one of our trauma bays and she's screaming about some explosion. And I'm trying to put this together in my head. And I was like, that, well, that doesn't make sense. And just as she came, the next patient named Roseanne Sedoya, who by the way, has a book out now, uh, and I have no financial relationship. It's a good book. It's a good read, Roseanne's story. Roseanne gets wheeled in. And when the chaos of this, the sort of the general adherence to patient privacy took a step back for a minute, meaning the curtains weren't all pulled in the room. So I could look in and see both of these patients in side-by-side -side rooms, and both of them had the same injury pattern. And it was this injury pattern that I had seen, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of times downrange, which was this injury pattern of, of bilateral lower extremity fragmentation and traumatic amputation. And it was at that point, looking at those two patients and, 
and their limb injuries, I knew exactly what had happened at the finish line. I mean, I didn't know all the details, but I knew that there was some IED. And frankly, that was all I needed to know. I went and grabbed Roseanne and took her off to the operating room. After that initial wave, you took that patient to the operating room. Did you come back and see other patients? What was your involvement? Oh, yeah. This went on for quite some time. And of course, lots of patients coming in several waves. The the details of of how we manage these wave upon waves of patients probably beyond the scope of this interview, but many waves of patients. And as you probably know, you know, usually the most severe come first and then the walking wounded come latest. But as it turns out, some of the walking wounded have very severe injuries and uh, our trauma team and our, our hospital, just like every other trauma center in town, was really working and operating for about a day and a half straight, trying to prioritize, triage, retriage, and figure out who needs a take back and when and how the take back should get prioritized and whose abdomen was left open, and when do they need to be closed, and did you leave laps in, and we're just going to x-ray everyone because no one can remember what they did, or check for vessel loops, and so on. So we had, as a staff, we assembled all of our surgical staff and residents every afternoon just to go over all the cases that had been done that day, and to try to understand and reprioritize what the OR schedule should look like for the following morning. Like who should go first? Because right, just like I had no idea what Lee Cancio was doing in the same OR I was in, in a bed three feet away, I certainly have no idea what one of my surgical partners was dealing with on a different floor in a different operating room. So I might think that my patient is the most urgent to go back, but I had no idea the catastrophe one of my partners was dealing with and how that case definitely was more important and should go back first thing in the morning. So every day for a few days, we kept doing this drill over and over to try to make sure that we were prioritizing and retriaging very sick patients appropriately. So in 2021, you gave a lecture to the Imperial College of London on lessons learned from the Boston Marathon bombing. Can you tell us some of those lessons learned and how we can apply them in other cities and situations? The title of that lecture is a little bit tongue-in-cheek. It's 26.2 lessons learned from the Boston Marathon bombing. Obviously, there weren't 26.2 lessons, but it was a marathon, so you have to pick a number. And for myself, I probably learned about 15 or 18 lessons that are useful for exportation to other places, other people, other systems. And one of the the lesson learned from the Boston bombing, but it really wasn't. It was a lesson learned in Afghanistan, frankly. And that is the routine failure of the electronic medical record system to keep up with casualties. It, it, It just can't be done, at least not yet. And what I found myself doing during the Boston bombing was the same thing that I had done on a 2011 tour in Afghanistan, which was I took a Sharpie marker out of my pocket and I started writing on the patient's foreheads, important details, and then right on my scrubs, right? Patient number one, this set of injuries, patient number two, this set of injuries. So all I had to do is look down at my scrub pants leg to try to remember which patient had which problem and what their blood gas looked like. And that was going to help me prioritize. I even drew little pictures and reminders of what their chest x-rays and pelvic x-rays look like. Because sometimes if you just see the diagram of, of the fragmentation pattern, it sparks the memory of, oh, yes, I remember exactly what that patient looks like and what the priorities are. So there are many lessons. One of them is don't rely on your electronic medical record system to keep up. Another one that we experience as it relates to electronic medical records, not to issue sequential medical record numbers to patients who come in during mass casualty events. Because what happened to to me and to many 
is if I give you a medical record number, one, two, three, four, and the next patient, I give a medical record number, one, two, three, five, then all it takes is for me to make a single keystroke error when I'm in a hurry and I hit the five instead of four. And now I'm looking at a blood gas and a hemoglobin on the wrong patient. And if I see, you know, hemoglobin of three on the patient with the wrong keystroke, and I think it's the other one, suddenly you're transfusing unnecessarily and booking the operating room. And so I think this is very dangerous, these sequential medical record numbers. And that's like low-hanging fruit. That was so easy for our information systems people to solve. We don't do that anymore. And one of the other lessons learned is during mass casualty events, stay away from the tunnel of death. Most of those patients have no business in the CT scanner. If you can't figure out what's wrong with them and who needs an operation without a CT scan, you need a new job. The CT scanner almost has no role in in mass casualty events. You can figure all that out without putting someone in the tunnel of death. And, and, And the same applies for what happens when the ultrasound stops working or you just don't have enough ultrasounds, which is what happened to us. Like, what's this patient's fast exam? I don't know. I haven't seen the ultrasound machine in two hours. Where did it go? Nobody has any idea. It's in some other trauma room, all bloodied up. Or you need the chest X-ray and the pelvic X-ray, and uh, they're nowhere to be found because they're working their tail off, taking care of the other 50 patients that you're not taking care of. You're taking care of the one, you know? And you need to have a way to solve those problems in the face of non-infinite resources, right? So the answer to the the absence of a chest X-ray in someone who's dying is bilateral chest tubes and a pericardial window if you need to in the operating room, right? I mean, that's the answer to that. And the answer to the, do I need a CT scan for abdominal bleeding or I don't have the ultrasound is a, a DPA or a DPL. There are ways to solve these problems without complete reliance on technology. And there is absolutely a role for that in mass casualty situations. And what is often, I think, very challenging for non-military surgeons to 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 wrap their mind around is the switch that has to go off in your head during a mass casualty event where you need to get away from doing everything for this patient and start thinking about doing the greatest good for the greatest number. And that is a frankly foreign concept in civilian medical care in the United States, where we generally regard ourselves as having infinite resources and being the absolute advocate for any one patient The problem is when there's 243 patients and not infinite resources and not infinite docs, you need to switch gears to greatest good for the greatest number. And that can be, I've I've found very challenging for many people to do. And I feel like military surgeons do it better than most, but that sometimes that's a hard transition. So in 2016, I had the chance to hear kind of an amazing story of a remarkable save of an army ranger. And it was told by the, at that time, the Army Vice Chief of Staff, General Daniel Allen. And I found out recently that you played a major role in the care of that ranger. Can you describe that experience? And what were you thinking at that time? When that when that event was made public, it was right after the, the team, the assault team who was on that mission it w- was told to never talk about it, right? It was a time where I was working in the special operations community and that raid was a sensitive raid. And, and so... We were all surprised to to see that. Now, granted, that ranger's name was Oliver Campbell. This is in the public domain as well. And he has publicly talked about these events at SOMA. So most of this is out there. I was a tactical surgeon on that mission. And Ranger Campbell got shot multiple times in in the chest. And the the chest wounds ended up being thoracal abdominal wounds, as 
you can imagine they often are. And uh, he had a traumatic arrest. I performed a anterolateral thoracotomy on him. I started under night vision, switched over to white light when it was safe. And what was interesting about that is we were operating, I mean, we're in the mountains. It was well below freezing. And this is an experience that has never happened to me before. I took the knife, made the incision. And when I put the finiquetto in and started ratcheting it open, his chest was so humid and filled with blood that when I leaned in to see what was happening, the humidity immediately blasted my face and fogged up my, my eye pro and I couldn't see a darn thing. So I had to take my bloody hand and bloody gloved hand and whip off my eye pro so I could complete the operation because I, I couldn't see because it was so cold outside. And of course, he was so warm and humid inside his, his body cavity, his left pleural space. And uh, he had a, a gunshot wound through the left inferior pulmonary vein that was just hosing liters per minute. He had a, a traumatic arrest. So I took that opportunity to, to repair his pulmonary vein in, in a not a bloodless field, but it's certainly less bloody when the heart is not moving and pumping than when it is. And it, this is a, a conscious decision that many trauma surgeons make to not re, not immediately restart the heart. If it looks like the hemorrhage control fix can be done quickly and can be done better in a, a condition of a non-beating heart. And as you know, sometimes we use moves, the eponyms don't matter, but there's a, a variety of eponymously named moves where, where we, we will intentionally stop the heart in order to facilitate fixing injuries, like total inflow occlusion, what we'll use that will arrest the heart that'll allow us to fix things in the back of the heart, for example. So he had a, a, a traumatic arrest from exsanguination. And I thought, well, this is an opportunity to be able to fix this without the heart beating in my face. So I did. And I think that his total rest time was, I don't know, 10 or 12 minutes or so started his heart back up. And he ended up making a remarkable recovery, came home, medically retired, went to undergrad at Dartmouth and now is enrolled in medical school. I mean, just an incredible story for that ranger. I'm just curious from a surgical perspective, when you have an injury like that, are you just like whip stitching this and hoping for the best as far as the inferior pulmonary ligament goes, or are you like taking prolines out? You have to take the inferior pulmonary ligament down. You can do that, <clears throat> pardon me, sharply in about five seconds. You have to be careful, of course, as you approach the atria, but you really can't maneuver the left lung without doing that. But the problem with that injury, if you just whip stitch it closed without having a real clear view, I think you're at risk of making a pulmonary segment ischemic or creating an uh, unintentional intrapulmonary AV fistula. Those very proximal injuries like that, I, I, I think they need to be treated with a lot of respect. And you, you can't just take these big giant bites. And just because the blood is not coming out anymore doesn't mean you've achieve victory. Or as I often like to say, packing is not a hemorrhage control maneuver, right? When you open the abdomen and all you do is throw a bunch of white things in, that has done nothing. That's not why we pack the abdomen, right? We don't pack the abdomen to stop bleeding. We pack the abdomen to make the white things turn red, right? The lap pads soak up the blood so you can see what the heck is injured. Then you take them out and you fix the thing that's bleeding underneath. The packs themselves, with the exception of preperitoneal packing for complex pelvic fractures, or periapatic liver packing for complex liver lacerations, there's really no role for packing the abdomen as a hemostatic maneuver. Like you tell me you're gonna pack a hole in the aorta, get out of here, that doesn't work. So packing is not really a hemorrhage control maneuver. And I feel the same way about, about taking like desperate giant bites of things. You don't know what's underneath. There are, there are often very dangerous places to do that. Certainly around the SMA is one of them, around the pancreas, the porta, these are all places where you just can't afford to be sloppy. There is no substitute for good technical surgery. 
And as they say in, in the house of God by Samuel Shem, it, you guys have read this, right? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's one of the rules of the fat man. It, remember, it's not your blood on the floor. And the first thing you do at a code is take your own pulse. So you have to you have to recognize when you're in high cost real estate country, which for me is generally the neck, the pelvis, the mediastinum. Those are high real estate areas where an error is poorly tolerated, so poorly tolerated that it, they may be irrecoverable errors that dooms that patient. And so when I'm operating deep in the pelvis, in the mediastinum or in the neck, I think to myself, slow down, accept higher blood loss here and make a good technical fix. Even if it means three extra units of blood, I'll take it. That doesn't mean you have all darn data to mess around. You got to know what you're doing, but slow down and make deliberate, good, solid technical moves. You can't afford to just take the biggest needle you can find and just start ramming it, ramming stitches in and be happy when suddenly the blood is not coming out anymore. That is not good enough. So you deployed in 2019 as the medical consultant for the U.S. State Department to Afghanistan in support of Operation Resolute Support. What did that assignment entail? So my role there was really trying to dig down on medical care and how we were going to deliver higher, higher order sophistication of medical care in certain embassies and other places where we might not have access to traditional military medical chains of evacuation. The job that I did for the special operations community is squarely in the realm of expeditionary surgery. It's performing surgery under worst possible conditions you can think of. And a part of that mission requirement is it truly being uh, geography agnostic. So if you tell me I have to do do the splenectomy in the backseat of a car, check, I got that. Uh, back of a box truck can do that too. On the ground in the dirt, no problem. Picnic table, got it. Like dismiss with all this idea of an operating room. Don't need it, don't want it, don't care to have it. If it's there, that's fine, but that that's not what we do. And that deployment was trying to push the limits of how can we do a lot with a little and the littlest footprint in the smallest possible way to draw the least amount of attention, but still maintain acceptable standards of first world medical care. Just because you're in an austere environment doesn't mean you should receive substandard care. And how do we achieve and assure that we're delivering that? So you mentioned your connection with the Joint Special Operations Command and doing things in austere locations and having to operate in crazy experiences like on a picnic table or in the dirt. Are there anything that that comes to mind as just some amazing stories you know, without any OPSEC that you just are memorable stories for you from that JSOC experience? I mean, boy, there were just so many good stories. And, and you know, the funny thing is the good stories are, are because of the good people. <laughs> Truly, I, I know you've interviewed on the podcast a handful of other people who have had similar jobs for, for the command. And it, it really is the, the people that that make the uh, that make the experience so memorable. Just again, w- without rolling myself and in, in getting into a ball of trouble, I've had the 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 honor and privilege of being able to perform surgery in things that roll, things that fly, things that float, things that don't move, things that move a lot, things that bump, and every one of those is an an incredible experience. And especially when you get home, and I go in the operating room at Mass General. And, and I get asked, is it too hot or too cold for you? Can we adjust the temperature? 
what kind of music do you want to play? And I think, oh my gosh, boy, I am just, there's just so, so many resources. I don't know what to do with myself. What kind of music? Jeez. How about anything that doesn't sound like gunfire? How do you train? How do you prepare for that? I mean, do you have any kind of simulators that that make you operate in a place where you can't see very well and it's moving and you just don't have ideal conditions like you have at Mass General? Yeah, the command is very is very good at that, at creating extraordinarily realistic training environments. So you're you're exactly right. There are a variety of, of ways that 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 kind of austere surgery is simulated and combined with with all the noise pollution that goes with that have you ever tried to have a, a conversation in in the back of a CH47 it's impossible right unless you're on on the ICS system but to turn to the guy on the side of you and and just talk i mean it's basically impossible it's so loud almost any platform that the military moves personnel around in is designed to move people around, not for creature comforts. The idea of adding sound insulation is a remote priority at best, or not a priority at all, and nor should it be, right? That's not, that's not what the airframe or vehicle is designed for. But when someone says, we want you to do surgery in any one of these environments, you can imagine some pretty creative ways to train on that. So you've had numerous large funding grants related to the study of self-expanding foam or self-expanding elastomeric polymers for non-compressible and intracavitary hemorrhage. What research is necessary and what have been the struggles with this technology? One of the biggest problems on the battlefield is non-compressible torso hemorrhage as a major cause of preventable death. So if you look at died from wounds rates, particularly the original Eastridge paper, Death on the Battlefield, there's a sad solid proportion of warfighters who die before reaching an MTF with a surgical capability. And the primary determinant of survival after trauma is time to surgery. It's not time to resuscitation. It's not time to first blood transfusion or IV access or intubation. It's time to surgical control of hemorrhage. And it's a shame when you receive a casualty, as I have many, many times, who is alive, but clearly has bled so much that you make all the efforts to salvage them you fix the holes, you stop the bleeding, and then they go on and die anyway the next day in the ICU. So Lauren Blackburn, who is a good friend and a, and a co-fellow in Miami, had a, coined a term for this a bunch of years ago that he called exsanguination shock. And I don't know why he chose that term, but what he meant by it was not just that patients get low blood pressure when they bleed, but he meant it as a primary cause of death, meaning you get to a point where you've exsanguinated so much and are shocked so much that the surgeon can go and operate and fix the plumbing. We can stop the bleeding. We can refill the tank, fill it back up with blood. And those patients will still go on to die the next day or even sooner than the next day. And the reason he postulates, and I frankly agree with entirely, is that after a certain degree of shock insult, your your cellular machinery starts to break down, right? Your sodium potassium ATPases don't work anymore and gap junctions break down and so on. And so it's too simplistic to think, well, if I just fix the holes and keep the blood on the inside, the patient's going to get better. It's far more complex than that. The, the energetics, the cellular energetics are at play. And there comes a point in the, in the long grayscale of exsanguination or of bleeding where a living patient becomes unsalvageable no matter what you do. And 
that is hard to accept. And the reason I got interested in this area of research was because I had had just too many of those patients with very clearly salvageable, fixable injuries. I go to the operating room, I take the spleen out, or I fix the iliac artery, but they have already been so shocked for so long that their cellular machinery was irreversibly insulted. And suddenly they're on rocket fuel in the ICU and they die despite fixing all the holes and filling, filling the tank back up. Well, the reason that happened, of course, is because almost all of it occurred before they even got to the surgeon. So I got interested in ways to try to control intra-abdominal hemorrhage in the pre-hospital environment. And through an industry academic collaboration funded by DARPA, we created this self-expanding hemostatic foam, uh, which we nicknamed or named Rescue Foam, R-E-S-Q Foam. And uh, the industry partner on this project is a brilliant group of of, of engineers from a, a company just a, across the river called Arsenal Medical. And, and DARPA and I and Mass General and now the DOD have been partnered on this project for, I think, going on about 10 years, trying to refine this intra-abdominal foam in such a way that if you could administer it percutaneously, it goes in through a small trocar through the umbilicus, just like you would obtain like a 12 millimeter trocar access for any laparoscopic case you were going to do. You put a trocar through the umbilicus, you inject this foam, it takes about 30 seconds. And as the foam expands, it wraps around internal organs and creates a, a gentle tamponade effect and s- stops or slows exsanguination, allowing that casualty time enough to survive with good energetics in order to be evacuated to the MTF where a surgeon can go and definitively address those injuries. So this rescue foam is not an endpoint, it's a bridge. We like to refer to it as a hemostatic bridge to surgery. It just allows that patient to survive long enough to get to a surgeon with good energetics such that they don't end up dying despite doing all the things right in the operating room. And we've been working on this project for a long time and are finally on the cusp of starting a a clinical trial after about a decade of work in, in, in the animal laboratory trying to perfect this and in some cadavers. So just out of curiosity, when the patient gets to the surgeon and you know definitive surgery or exploratory surgery happens how hard is it to get rid of that foam so it's actually very easy and i'd like to say we we saw this coming and designed it exactly this way with much much forethought but as we tell the story of rescue foam we have to be honest about this a lot of foams that didn't work or worked really badly some foams we made at the beginning actually worsened bleeding. So we know how to make a lot of non-hemostatic foams. Fortunately, we also know how to make one really good hemostatic foam. And one of the characteristics that we stumbled on that is fundamental to hemostasis is that foams that are fairly hydrophobic are better hemostats than ones that are hydrophilic. And for a foam that has high hydrophobicity, that foam technically never touches your tissue. And the reason it never touches your tissue is because it's so hydrophobic. A tiny layer, right, of water or blood, which is mostly water, always exists between the foam and say the bowel or the diaphragm or the liver. So when it comes time to remove the foam, it's so hydrophobic that it doesn't stick to, it's not like glue, it doesn't stick to things. So you put your hand in, you get around the foam, and as you lift it out, you can just peel the bowel away gently and it just all it just all falls away because 
the, the foam is hydrophobic. If it were hydrophilic, right, it would adhere to and stick to anything, anything wet, right? Which is basically everything in a bleeding abdomen. And so, like I said, I think we've done a remarkable thing creating rescue foam, but I don't want to give us too much credit. The ease of removal was a, was something we frankly stumbled on like, oh, look at that. It's really, it's really hydrophobic and it works and it's easy to get out. We did not preconceive the how to get it out easily part until we were already like nine steps into, oh, geez, this stops bleeding. Just one question that I have about that is putting a, a 12 millimeter trocar is kind of a relatively complicated thing for say a medic. You'd probably need an ER doctor surgeon. Is there a possibility of injecting this in entry wounds and things like that? So we've given this much thought and we can say two things confidently. We can train the right people to correctly put an abdominal trocar in. Okay. Let me back up so we don't get in trouble here. Right now, the FDA has agreed to allow us inside of a study to put this into humans and the operator, the person putting the trocar in right now must be a surgeon, dead stop. So the next part of this that I'll explain to you is purely theoretical, but it's a place where I'd like to see this go in my head because it is the natural endpoint, right? And having done some good end user research, we've taken some 18 Delta special operations medics and been to the, the lab with them, taught them how to put abdominal trocars in and have had them demonstrate that they can do so repeatedly after a block of training, repeatedly and correctly and successfully. Now, there's some go, no-go steps here, right? So for example, one of the absolute no-goes is non-virgin abdomens. That's hard for anybody, the most experienced surgeon, trying to put a trocar into someone who already has a midline incision. So that's an absolute no-go for even for us. But the, this is not a treatment for someone who's already had an abdominal operation. And you can imagine why. If there's adhesions and you put a foam in that, it's going to pull on everything those adhesions are attached to. And you could potentially make a bad situation catastrophically worse. So we've given this kind of thing a lot of thought any prior abdominal surgery is an absolute contraindication and a no-go. And the starting point of that is it would be challenging to put a trocar in, let alone the disaster that might occur if you inject foam in. Now, now the question about using, say, entry wounds from, say, a, a gunshot wound is we know from the literature that the topography of the gunshot wound, that is where the hole is in your body, does not predict the pattern or organ of injury does not predict. We know it doesn't. The foam was designed to go in through the umbilicus. That is a relatively central location with, with relatively dramatically great efficacy. So we know it works. It stops bleeding. No one knows what happens if you inject this stuff through a right upper quadrant gunshot wound. I can imagine though some pretty awful things happening if you injected it through a right upper quadrant gunshot wound and that gunshot wound goes into the liver and you inject a self-expanding foam through a cavity in the liver, you just you might blow up the whole liver. So we have long ago abandoned the idea of using of using fragmentation or, or bullet wounds as a way to introduce a trocar. For foam to be reliably, reproducibly hemostatic, it has to go in through the same anatomic location every time, and that is a umbilical or periumbilical trocar. So with the viscosity of the foam and the volume required, I assume it's going to take at least a 12 meter millimeter trocar. You can't get anything smaller than that to get what you need in there, right? Well, so it's an interesting question. It, it's one we haven't researched. We don't know 
the answer to how small can you go. The foam itself, though, is a, a dual liquid precursor. There are two liquids of differing viscosities, and the trocar has a static mixing component inside the trocar. That is, you squeeze the handle like a caulking gun. As you squeeze the handle, it forces the two liquids out, and they go into this static mixing nozzle, static mixing trocar, which looks like a maze, right? You're squeezing these two fluids through this maze. And as the two fluids are forced through the maze, they become homogenized and become one fluid. And once they're in the abdomen, they react with each other to expand to 32 and a half times or 33 and a half times their original volume and undergo a phase change from liquid to solid. And we've never asked or answered the question of how small can you go? I have my own sort of surgical technical feelings about that. Smaller might be frankly, might be more dangerous than, than bigger. There's something, there's something safe about making an incision big enough to get your finger in versus trying to poke a varus needle and not knowing where the tip of that varus needle is. Is it in the prepared needle space? Maybe, maybe not. Is it in bowel? Is it in the colon? So it, it's a question we haven't asked and answered. And I don't know that we, at least in the short term, would intend to do that. There's something that feels very safe about a larger incision where you put in a big blunt trocar that has an exceptionally low chance, right? Something that's big and blunt and plastic, exceptionally low chance of injuring viscera as you're inserting it. As you can imagine, like a Hassan port with the with the obturator in, right? It's round, it's blunt. It's not impossible to injure something. You can injure anything with a cavalier or with a dumb hand, but it's my my belief that probably a bigger incision with a bigger, blunter trocar is safer than smaller. And we're just at the beginning of this thing, trying to establish our experience in humans. And the overarching approach to first experience in human beings absolutely has to be first do no harm. We have to establish that we're what we're doing, we're doing so in a safe way. And that means if there's any two competing choices about a way, a way to do something or an approach to the problem, we always have to err on the safer of those two choices or three or five choices, because what is ethically unacceptable is, is introducing a possible solution that results in harm. We just we can't have that. Certainly not introducing a possible solution that has harm that could have been foreseen and prevented, like poking around a varus needle indiscriminately in a dying patient. So that, that's how we wound up where we are with a 12 millimeter blunt trocar. It was really less about viscosity and more about what is a safe way to introduce foam into the abdomen. And, and we came down on blunt and big might be safer than skinny and sharp. It's too bad you couldn't get the foam to expand 26.2 times as big. <laughs> right, right. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I'm sure we can do that. That might not be as effective though. So you've also been involved in, in other uh, techniques to prevent bleeding, including, I think we've talked to several people and we've rediscovered the tourniquet and tourniquet comes with certain problems and, and you've researched the tourniquet. Can you tell us a little bit about what are the current concerns about the usage and what are some of the things that we can do to improve that in the future? So at the at the expense of committing heresy to the American College of Surgeons, I'll say I was <clears throat> I was ringing the tourniquet bell for years and years before it was even remotely popular. I, I remember in 2007 or eight or nine or I took some some trip 
where my primary mission was distributing first generation cat tourniquets to everyone I could find in, in, in wearing a uniform and, and then teaching them how to use it. What really got my fire lit, though, was the Boston bombing and the Sandy Hook shooting. Well, you, you know about my role in the Boston bombing, but I, I also was on the Hartford Consensus following the, the Sandy Hook shooting. And as we looked across all of those casualties and realized that there were a variety of injuries and deaths and certainly blood loss that may have been mitigated by proper use of a hemostatic adjunct like a tourniquet. And on the day of the Boston bombing, I wrote a manuscript on this that you may have read called the Boston Marathon Bombing Lost in Translation because the the tourniquet had become, by that point, that was in 2013, pretty widely accepted in the military community. Everyone was carrying one. Most people were carrying two, right? One for themselves and one for their buddy. Boston EMS at that time was not carrying tourniquets. And when we looked over every photo and every video we could find of the bombing, not a single purpose-made tourniquet could be identified. And there were, as I recall, 66 limb injuries with recognized scenic sanguination and not a single purpose-made tourniquet. Lots of improvised tourniquets, but what the data overwhelmingly shows is that improvised tourniquets rarely work, particularly those applied under duress. That is not in the sterility of a classroom setting. Almost anyone can improvise an effective arterial tourniquet in the confines of a classroom and a whiteboard and air conditioning and music and a background and coffee. It's a whole different deal to do it under fire or at night or while returning fire or at the finish line of a marathon that just got blown up. That is quite a different deal. The long and short of it is most improvised tourniquets do not work, which is not to say, again, that you can't improvise an effective tourniquet. You can. It's just that most people taken on a population level, if they can, they do so poorly under duress or they just can't. And after the Boston bombing, I just saw this as a mission I needed to take on. Following Sandy Hook, this whole thing just conspired and got me really interested. So I started looking at how to train lay people to to recognize exsanguinate and how to put tourniquets on. And then I, I developed some philanthropy and got tourniquets donated. I trained my kids' own elementary school first, trained all the teachers, staff, principal in hemorrhage control techniques, and then had tourniquets donated to the school along with a hemostatic gauze, because I also taught them junctional, junctional wound packing with hemostatic materials. And then went around, did a whole bunch of other schools. I did the state house. I did our own hospital at, at MGH. We undertook a campaign to co-locate tourniquets with every AED in the hospital. So now everywhere you see an AED is a hemorrhage control kit co-located with that AED. And this is my vision for for really all hospitals, federal buildings, they should all look like this. And uh, now when I travel around, uh, so just recently I was passing through Dallas-Fort Worth and I saw an AED hanging on the wall in the passenger terminal. And right above it was a little stop sign that said, stop the bleed. And uh, I could see inside there a, a tourniquet packaged with the uh, AED. And I, I thought, man, I wonder if I had any role whatsoever in at least kickstarting this thing along. And what I would say is I'm proud of that work. And I, I'm, I'm glad we are where we are because it's light years ahead of where we were, say, in 2005 or 2004. But in my experience now, the pendulum has swung a little bit too far. What I see in my practice in Boston is a general overuse of tourniquets. That is, 
tourniquets being put on for patients who clearly do not have exsanguination and whose wounds are clearly amenable to a little bit of direct pressure. Many of these patients do not need tourniquets, which is not to say that there's not a role for tourniquets in sanguinating limbs. There, but there's subtleties there, meaning if you have a patient with, with some limb bleeding that maybe is not exsanguination, there's a role to tourniquet that limb. If that purpose of tourniqueting that limb is because you need to free up your hands to do something else, like needle the chest or intubate or whatever. But if the only purpose of tourniqueting the limb that responded to direct pressure is because you want to put the tourniquet on or because it's cool or because someone just taught you how to do it, that's the wrong motivation. And I, I think nationwide, there's the pendulum has swung a little bit too far. And there's, I, I think, a pretty wild overuse of tourniquets. Fortunately for us, we are not on the battlefield, which means evacuation times are short. And so it ends up not mattering that much. If you give someone an unnecessary tourniquet, I, I wrote a paper on this too. I had 98 tourniquets in Afghanistan that I looked at and a minority had mistakes in application. And the majority of patients who had tourniquets applied did not have a named vascular injury, suggesting that those were limbs that probably didn't need a tourniquet. However, I, I absolutely respect the role of the tourniquet when you need to free up your hands. It's not a lot of bleeding, it's a little, but probably it's not good to have a lot, any blood loss. So you put a tourniquet on so you can go do something else, like return fire and kill the enemy. That's important. We have to have that as the R. It's not A, B, C, D or B, A, C, D. We should be, the R should come first, which is return fire and eliminate the threat. Then you can move on with everything else. There is a role for that, but I think nationwide, the pendulum is swung a little too far and we're, we're, we're putting tourniquets on limbs that do not have exsanguination. The only silver lining there is we're not on the battlefield. And so evacuation times are short. So if you take someone who does not have limb exsanguination and apply a tourniquet unnecessarily, their ischemia time is so short that by the time they get to the hospital and we take it off, they reperfuse the limb and you end up getting away without having to thrombectomize and do fasciotomies and all the things that you would normally do for someone who ends up with a, a battlefield casualty who has an ischemia time of say four hours, that ends up sort of end up ends up being the routine on how you're going to attempt to salvage that limb with a four or five or six hour ischemia time. In the United States, most people are not five hours away from a medical treatment facility where someone can take that tourniquet down and reperfuse the limb and establish whether or not they really do have limb exsanguination and whether or not the tourniquet was really needed or whether or not they need a thrombectomy or arterial repair or or what their injury pattern is. And I think I, I accept some blame for that myself because I went out teaching every school teacher I could find after Sandy Hook, how to put a tourniquet on and how to recognize limbic sanguination. And I, I frankly think we may have overdone it a little bit, which is, I think, a very different situation on, on the military medicine side. And the reason it's different is because the pattern of injuries are very different. You are far more likely to encounter a a bilateral lower extremity blast and fragmentation wound on the battlefield than you are in downtown Boston. But as far as civilian limb injuries go, this is an uncommon pattern. That is a blast injury so severe that in order to save a life, that limb injury requires a tourniquet to control exsanguination. That is a rare civilian injury, not impossible, but it's rare. And I think we need to be sensitive to that and recognize that the tourniquet is not the solution for everything in a limb that bleeds. Direct pressure works really well, and it works really well almost all the time for almost all civilian injuries. And we need to really be conscious and reserve the tourniquet for patients who truly have limb exsanguination.
Yeah, and I think it's important too, now that we have tourniquets that actually work. It was interesting, we talked with John Holcomb a couple of weeks ago about early in the 2000s, the, the military was giving people tourniquets that didn't really occlude an artery. They, they weren't tight enough. And so I guess it's a problem you don't expect when you have tourniquets at work and you put them on unnecessarily, but I understand that point. Yeah, certainly. And if you look across tourniquet design, the th thing that you need, and by the way, the thing that you need to effectively improvise an arterial tourniquet, it's the reason you can't do it with a belt. A belt is never a good tourniquet. It's a great venous tourniquet. And you apply a venous tourniquet to a, a de devastating, exsanguinating limb injury. What you usually get with a venous tourniquet like a belt is so-called paradoxical bleeding, right? You put the venous tourniquet on, you occlude all the venous outflow to the limb, you do nothing to the inflow, and what you end up doing is guaranteeing that all the inflow to the limb spills out onto the street because you've occluded all the venous return with your constricting band that's not tight enough to occlude arterial inflow. That's that's a dangerous move. And, and I think for most successful tourniquet designs, they all share something in common. That is a mechanical advantage, right? A windlass, a device that allows you to get a mechanical advantage over the constricting band so that you can create an enormous amount of circumferential pressure, which is what you need, an enormous amount of circumferential pressure to compress an artery that has an internal pressure of 100 millimeters of mercury. To generate circumferential pressure that compresses an artery, that occludes an artery with an internal pressure of 100 millimeters of mercury, you need 200 millimeters of mercury of indirect circumferential pressure. It's like when you expose the femoral artery and there's a hole in it, and the blood pressure is 60, how much pressure do you have to put on the hole with your finger to stop it from bleeding? Exactly 60, right? Or 61 millimeters of mercury, and it stops bleeding. Well, you can't do that from the outside world, right? There's skin, fascia, muscle, all that stuff above the artery. You have to apply an enormous amount of external pressure, usually twice blood pressure, in order to occlude that artery. And that's almost impossible to do pulling a constricting band over a single fulcrum, like a belt. There's hardly not a single human strong enough to do that, which is why you need a device with a, a, some form of a mechanical advantage. And, and that is not the absolute solution, of course. There are plenty of pneumatic tourniquets that do not have that kind of pneumatic mechanical advantage that work extremely well. But the, 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 the jury is out on battlefield pneumatic tourniquets. They have a, a variety of potential problems. That is, the bladders can get old and crack. And what you don't want is a leaking pneumatic tourniquet that's been in your rucksack for two years that when you take it out to pump it up, doesn't work. One of the best tourniquets going is a blood pressure cuff. Just pump it up till the limb starts bleeding. It works great right up until the blood pressure cuff starts to leak air. I nor no one else should be married to the idea that the effective design of a tourniquet must include a windlass for mechanical advantage. I'm sure there's another way to engineer that, but at least right now, the way things stand, that all the best, most effective battlefield tourniquets have that as a fundamental part of their design. They have a windlass to create a mechanical advantage, and you need that to generate twice circumferential pressure of whatever blood pressure is. And that was kind of an invention out of necessity for the military when they went to war in the desert. And they said, okay, we've got the constricted thing on, go fetch me a stick. We're, <laughs> we're in the desert. Where am I going to find a Where stick? Going to get a stick? Yeah, I'm sure you guys have seen this. I've seen plenty of um, of correctly improvised tourniquets. I've seen a, a pair of, of cry precision pants wrapped around a limb with the barrel of a 50 cal tied over the top of it, twisted around, 
to occlude our arterial inflow to that limb and having the casualty himself clutching the, the 50 cal barrel to prevent it from unwinding. So yes, it can be done, but we have a better mousetrap for that now. And we shouldn't be improvising when we don't need to. We can use that 50 cal to do something else. That's, that's exactly right. Yes. So one of the things that we we like to ask our guest is if, if someone unearths this podcast 50, 100 years from now, and you have the opportunity to talk to your future family about your career in military medicine, what, what would you want them to know about it? When you guys sent me sort of the, the primer for the interview, I read that last question and it got me choked up for a second because it's funny, my, my daughter, just the other day, my oldest daughter, uh, who's 15, just the other day asked me for the first time, what is it like being a surgeon in the army? She's never asked me that before, or really anything about any of my experiences. And I know it's not for disinterest. She was younger. and But anyway, it struck me that you guys were interested in that question. And then it, it, just, it just came up with my daughter the, the other day, my oldest daughter. And boy, it really got my, my head spinning. And the, the only thing I can say is I'm about to turn 50. And so not to be too morbid, but at 50, my life is half over, right? Roughly. And when I look back on the first half of my life and I think, what is the good stuff that I've done? Like, really, what is the good stuff? If, if I was going to look back and say, man, that was good. I'm glad I did that. I wish I could do it again, or I would absolutely do it again. Short of loving my children and taking care of them, my military service has absolutely been the highlight of my 50 years on earth so far. And I'm not trying to be like a recruiting poster guy for the army. People join the military for their own sets of reasons, and that shouldn't change. But for me, at least, absolutely the highlight of the first 50 years of my life. No question about it. We've been speaking with trauma surgeon Colonel Dave King on Wardock's podcast. Dave, thanks again for sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service to the nation. And I have to say that I'm glad that the recruiter in Boston, when you were an intern, didn't drop the ball. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Wardocs, the military medicine podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to follow and subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please rate and review this podcast and share our show with your contacts on social media. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests and how to become a member of Team Wardocs on our website, wardocspodcast.com. That's Podcast one word, dot com. Thanks so much for your support. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.